0: Good morning, I'm Jacob. I'm one of the elders here at the branch. I haven't been up here for a while. And so while I do know many of you there, well, I can't even see you behind your masks that well, but uh, I don't know all of you. And so I wanted to start out just telling you a little bit about myself, maybe give some context for the message today. Um, so a few things about myself. I grew up in the far north suburbs of Chicago, just a few minutes from Lake Michigan and I'm a die-hard Cubs fan, and in generally just love baseball. I forgot there's a Cubs fan sitting here too. Uh, uh, I especially love baseball now that I get to watch my kids play. I also like mountain biking. However, I'm not very consistent at riding my bike, and so I, I would hesitate to call myself a mountain biker. But if you want to go for a ride, I'm, I'm open to riding, despite how out of shape I might be. I like chips. Uh, Barbecue are the best, but sadly, I'm sorry, there are no chip illustrations in this sermon. You see, somehow, over the years, I've become known for using chip illustrations, but I just couldn't make one fit this time. If you want to know more, there are recordings on the website. But more importantly, I have a wife and four awesome kids, I think there'll be a picture on the screen. I didn't tell Chris what I was asking him to do, but uh, they're 12, 10, six, and not quite two. This picture was just a couple weeks ago. We bribed them. Normally they're wrestling and fighting. And so to say the least, the last six months have been interesting, right? We have been having a good time as a family, but it's also been hard for sure. Church and sports activities have been canceled. The kids aren't getting to see their friends as much. And at the same time, we've also gotten to do some family activities that that had been falling by the wayside. We've been able to go camping more often, and just play games together. We've had time together. You see, through this, we've learned at least one thing so far. You see, before everything shut down in March, we had a pretty busy schedule. And at least I like to say yes to things sometimes without considering what that yes really means in our lives. Then everything stopped, and suddenly we didn't have to wonder how we were going to be three places at the same time, or whose baseball game was in town, who was out of town, wherever, whatever it was, where did we have to be? We had time, lots of time, to just be as a family. It was a chance for us to reset, to consider more thoughtfully how we are spending our time. And this is still something we are working through, right? I'm I'm still trying to figure out what this looks like in my family's life. And coincidentally, or not coincidentally, I did not pick today's passage. Okay, this passage was scheduled on a day, or the only Sunday in August, that I was available to preach. You might be wondering, because today's September. (laughs) Turns out I wasn't available when I said I could preach. But nevertheless, today we're in Psalm 25. If you haven't turned there yet, please go ahead and open your Bibles or turn on your phone. We're going to jump around to some verses, um, just try to follow along. See, this psalm is a beautiful model of prayer. You see, the whole psalm is full of elements of David praising and adoring God, of confessing his sins and making requests to God. If you ever struggle knowing how or what to pray, take this psalm, open it up, and pray through it. And as we break down the parts of this psalm this morning, we're gonna look at, we're gonna see David's trouble and affliction. And you may be surprised to find that his troubles were not really any different from what you and I have faced or maybe are facing right now. And in light of these troubles, we'll see how David prays about them, what his petitions are, the reasons that he has confidence in his prayers. And then we will see what all of this means for us. And after we do all of that, my hope is that you will remember this. Put your trust and hope in the Lord. He guides and delivers sinners. And if you're taking notes, this will be on the screen. This is kind of our outline, right? Put your trust and hope in the Lord. This is like David's situation, his plea, his confidence. And then we will see how God guides sinners and how God delivers sinners. Put your trust and hope in the Lord. He guides and delivers sinners. So David's situation. In order to understand why David has written this psalm, why he's praying like this, we need to understand his situation. And fortunately, he tells us right here in this psalm everything he's facing. These things, they're just hitting him from all sides. To start in verse 2, he tells God that he is afraid of his enemies. They're attacking him. This is both a physical attack and as well as attack on his character. He fears that his reputation will be damaged. It reads in part, let me not be put to shame, let not my enemies exalt over me. He again talks about his enemies in verse 19. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. That's pretty vivid, isn't it? Violent hatred, they hate him. It's not easy going for David and he is afraid. And at the same time, we see that he's lonely in verse 16. If you look with me, it says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. David is lonely, and this loneliness is related to his fear. He's under attack. People don't really like him. They don't like the ideas of integrity and uprightness that he's sharing. You see, he's convicted about how one should live in the kingdom of God. But they don't like his convictions. These two troubles play off of one another. And because of David's trust in God, because of the way he believes he is being called to live, people don't like it. They wanna discredit him. They wanna get in the middle of his relationship with God and break it up. He's not really making friends here. Because if what he is saying is true, which it is, it threatens the way that they want to live. It threatens their self-centered focus the idea that they can do whatever they want without regard for anything greater. Standing up for God can be a lonely place sometimes. Feeling like the whole world is against you. You are losing friends because of what you believe. That is what David is feeling here. Can you relate to that? We also find David here unsure of the path that he's supposed to follow. In verse four, he says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. It's like he's saying, how do I navigate all of these things going on in my life, God? Have you ever asked that question? Feeling overwhelmed and confused? Have you ever wondered where God wants you to be? Should you go after the new job or stay where you are and be content? Are you being called to move away from family and friends for some opportunity or mission? Or is God using you right here where you are at? Sometimes We don't think he's using us because we think our role is too small, but that diminishes his ability to use us. We may not recognize it, but he is using us no matter what to make his name great. How about more mundane, day-to-day decisions? Sometimes we agonize over the smallest decision, and it doesn't mean anything, no lasting effect on life, while at other times we don't agonize over seemingly small decisions and those small decisions, they add up to mean something. How we interact with people we don't know or we do know. How we spend our money, what we do in our free time, what shows or movies we choose to watch, what we choose to study in school, and why, why are we motivated to choose that. Whether we get married, and who do we marry? Whether we have kids, how many kids do we have? Maybe you're just indecisive, you don't want to make a decision. While this is not an exhaustive list by any means, decisions like these and others that we think are small can bring glory to God as we strive to walk the path that he has set out for us. Or they can detract from our ability to glorify God when we try to go our own way. We can be grumpy and short with people or we can be patient and kind. We can fill up our free time fulfilling our selfish desires or we can use some of that time loving and helping others. This is not to mean that we should never take time to ourselves to recharge. We can seek out the highest paying job or high status in society for our own glory, or we can use those things to bring glory to God. We make so many decisions in just one day, and all of those decisions add up to be our witness to the world. Those decisions matter. They matter to God, and they should matter to you. And now we move on to the last thing that David is facing here guilt. He is feeling guilty for his own transgressions. Look at these verses with me. Verse 7 Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Verse 8 Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Verse 11 For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Verse 18, consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. You see this here in Psalm 25 is the first time that David has actually recognized his own sin in the Psalms. And Look at how many times he brings it up. In 22 verses, he references his own sin, recognizes his own sinfulness four times. He hasn't talked about this before, and now it's this huge focus of his prayer. And this Recognition of his sin compounds his uncertainty, his confusion, because he now sees that his own sins are just as big of a stumbling block to him as those that are against him. His sins are not less of an affliction than those who hate him. Think about that for a minute. How quick are we to place guilt or blame on someone or something else before looking at ourselves? See, everything here that David struggles with, you and I have struggled with in some way, at some time. We've struggled with these same things. So what should we do? What does David do here? He prays. David prays, right? David's plea. He's vividly describing his troubles, and at the same time, he's pleading with God, petitioning him to make to take away his troubles. He asks God humbly to be taught... In verse 4, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For, you are, my God, for the, you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. He acknowledges his sin and demonstrates his complete reliance on the undeserved mercy of God. In verses 6 and 7, saying, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have not been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. David is throwing himself before the Lord. He is saying that he has no hope, but hope in God. No one, no other thing can deliver him from these afflictions. No one else. And then starting in verse 8, his prayer changes tone. He starts praising God for his faithfulness, and these praises, these are facts that he knows about God, about God's character. These praises also match up perfectly with the pleas that he's made. David is looking for guidance from God, and then he says, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and teaches the humble his way. David's seeking mercy and love, and he says, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. In verse 16, he asked God to turn to him and relieve his loneliness that he talked about. All of the troubles that David is facing, he prays specifically for relief from, to be protected from his enemies, to be guided in the way of the Lord, for forgiveness of his sins. And the tone of his prayer exudes trust and hope in God. But why can he have this confidence? He has confidence He puts his trust and hope in God because of these truths. Because he knows God's character, good and upright. All of his paths and steadfast love are steadfast love and faithfulness. And verse 13, his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. He makes known his covenant. This will be on the screen, but I'm going to read Genesis 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, or go, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house and to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God makes this amazing promise to Abraham. So amazing that Abraham doubted him more than once. And each time, later in Genesis 15 and again in 17, we see that God renewed his covenant with Abraham. He says, you doubt? Well, here's proof. I am who I say I am. You see, David wrote this psalm, and he was putting his trust and hope in this covenant, this promise that God made, and renewed and never strayed from. Now, David, he hadn't seen the fulfillment of this covenant when he wrote this psalm. And here's where we have an advantage we can put our trust and hope in the Lord because he has fulfilled all of his promises. He fulfilled this covenant. We know that, we see it laid out in the Bible. We can put our trust and hope in God because he keeps his promises. So what does this mean for us? When you have faced a decision that is not commanded in the Bible, which way should you choose? How do you decide? David is praying, asking God for guidance, and we need to do that as well. But the thing here is is the guidance we're asking for is not some miraculous sign or pointer. What we're learning in this psalm is that the way God responds to our requests for guidance and direction is not necessarily or even ordinarily with a miraculous sign. The way he guides us through ongoing teaching. What we are called to here is to grow in our understanding of who God is, what his ways are, how he leads us, and all of that, all of that, all that we need to know, he has laid out in Scripture. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. He's given it all to us. He is guiding us all the time. We may not always know it. He won't always show us how, but he's there. He is leading us on the path that he has set for us, And guess what is so great about this? I read this this line in a commentary about Psalm 25, and it kind of blew my mind. It said, He is far more interested in us getting to where He wants us to be than even we are. Think about that. He's more interested in us getting there than we are. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It is all for His glory. We are here to glorify Him, His name, And he's laid out the path for us to do it. Do you think he's going to let that plan fail? No. The answer is no. He will not let his plan fail. God has shown us so much about himself. Right here in Psalm 25. His character will not let the plan fail. He has shown us over and over that his plans don't fail. Even when we doubt, he comes through. Good and upright is the Lord. His paths are steadfast love and faithfulness. He is merciful and gracious. He protects and instructs all things we see in Psalm 25. He cares more about our willingness to obey what he has shown us in Scripture than about our cleverness in trying to figure out what he hasn't. You see, the more that we know about God, about who he is, about his character, the better we know him the closer our hearts grow to his hearts, his heart. And that's what his word teaches us. It teaches us who he is so that we can know him and know his ways. And the more we do that, the more we grow closer to him, the more our hearts align with his, the less we will feel the need for pleas of special guidance. So when we pray for guidance, We do that with the understanding that what we are asking for is to grow in our understanding of who God is and his ways. Now, who does he guide? Who does he guide here? We've seen why we can put our trust and hope in God and how he normally gives us guidance. So if we look back at Psalm 25 now, we're going to see who it is that he guides David lays it out in verses 8 to 15. I know we've looked at some of these verses before, but I want to read them again together. Starting in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. There he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Who does he guide? He guides sinners. He guides sinners. That's the first thing in the list. And it's not that sin is a requirement of being guided by God, but it doesn't get in the way. Our sin does not get in the way. Because God is good, we do not have to be sinless to receive his guidance. That's pretty huge. I mean, I certainly can't stand up here and say that I'm sinless, and I know I definitely need his guidance, and even more so when I sin. And we also see this throughout the Old Testament. There's evidence of this in the lives of some people who we might consider saints, like Abraham and Jacob and David and Gideon and Samson. They were all sinners. Abraham in his constant confusion between self-interest and divine promise. Jacob in his manipulative ways. David's abuse of kingly power for personal gain. Gideon's creation of idols Samson's self-destructive pursuit of love in the arms of the enemy. They were all sinners. And yet God relentlessly pursued them and instructed them in his way. So verse 8 tells us that if you want to know the will of God, first admit that you are a sinner. Verse 9 tells us more about who God guides. He guides the humble in his ways. Humility is also necessary in order to receive God's guidance those who realize they are helpless without him and acknowledge their need and reliance on God. He guides the humble. Verse 10 adds more to the description, those that keep his covenants and his testimonies. Covenant keeping does not mean sinlessness. We established that in verse 8. It doesn't mean perfect obedience. Not one of us can be perfect. It involves admitting your sin, putting your hope and trust only in God. It means fearing the Lord, as we see in the later verse. But what does fearing the Lord mean? I didn't come up with my own definition. Here's a couple definitions. One from a commentary. He is, uh, I can't remember which one this was from, sorry. It says Fear of God is an attitude that acknowledges one's absolute dependence on God for mercy, forgiveness, and continued existence. And then another definition in relation to Psalm 25, John Piper phrased it like this It means fearing to insult his knowledge by presuming to hide our sin. It means reverence of humility. It means fearing to dishonor God's name by not trusting that he is a reliable guide to joy. So, who does God instruct in his ways? Humble sinners who fear the Lord. He guides humble sinners who fear the Lord. But guess what? It gets even better than this. It gets even better. Not only does God guide sinners, but he also delivers sinners. God delivers sinners. I want to call your attention now to verse 11. This is the pivotal verse in this psalm. It says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Here in the middle of seeking guidance, David makes the big ask, pardon my guilt, forgive my sins. He recognizes how great his sins are, and he admits that to God, and he asks to be forgiven, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the Lord. You see, David is waiting for a savior. He recognizes here how great his sins are, sins that he hadn't brought up before, seemingly thinking that his sins were small or unimportant. But here he sees that they are great and that they are a stumbling block and that even more than God's guidance, he needs God's forgiveness. Let me say that again. Even more than God's guidance, he needs God's forgiveness. He needs to be pardoned of his sins. And so with a joyful hope, he waits on the Lord. And we see his hopeful waiting in verses 15 and 21. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. He knows that God is going to save him. He knows that God will fulfill his covenant. And so he waits. But here's the best news, friends. Unlike David, we don't have to wait. We don't have to wait. We have a Savior that we can put our hope and trust in today. God has fulfilled his promise. He's already done it. He sent his own son, Jesus, to be our Savior. Jesus came to this earth as a man. He lived the perfect life, a life that you, nor I, nor anyone else could live. And then he gave up his life so that we would be washed clean in the eyes of God. Jesus paid it all. If you have put your hope and trust in Jesus as your Lord and savior, your sins have been pardoned. He has done it. We didn't deserve it, but he has done it. He did all of the work. Now you may be sitting here thinking, well, my sins aren't that great. I'm usually a pretty good person or you're sitting here thinking the complete opposite. I am too far gone, my sins are too great for God. Let me ask you though, what are you saying when you look at your life and see your sins as a small matter or as too much for God? God doesn't see them as a small matter. Are we even praying prayers of repentance and confession in our own lives? You see, we are minimizing the name of God if we think that our sins are too great or too small. They all matter to God. John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I want to read this uh, quote from John Bunyan's book, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ as it expounds on this verse. uh, This will be on the screen, uh, but first I just want to note that there's a repeated phrase in here, in no wise, and this is a 17th century English way of capturing just how emphatically negative the Greek that is written here is. It says, but I am a great sinner, sayest thou, I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, sayest thou, I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm a hard-hearted sinner, sayest thou. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, sayest thou. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have severed served Satan all my days, sayest thou. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, sayest thou. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, sayest thou. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, sayest thou. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. Friends, he will not cast you out. If you have not accepted Jesus into your life, if you have not put your trust and hope in him as Lord and Savior of your life, what is holding you back? Your sins are not worse than anyone else here. They're not worse than David's. Your sins are not too small to matter to God. In fact, they matter so much to God that he showed his steadfast love and faithfulness to his plan by sending his own son, Jesus, to take that punishment on himself for all of them. His steadfast love endures forever, and he wants you in his kingdom. No matter how broken you think you are, there is forgiveness in Jesus. And Notice that I said Lord and Savior. These two go together. We need his forgiveness and his guidance. We can't seek his forgiveness while at the same time ignoring his guidance. And this psalm makes that clear, that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. And I want to point out one more thing about this psalm. For 21 verses, David prays all of these things for himself. And then in verse 22, he says, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. He says, not just me, God, but all of your people. We all need redemption. This is how we too should be praying. We should pray these things for ourselves, but it's not just about furthering our relationships with God. We must also be praying these things together, praying them for one another, praying that the church would grow together, that our relationships would grow as we grow with Christ. We all need redemption. If you remember back at the beginning, I told you a little story about something my family has learned during this pandemic. And what I was alluding to was making decisions without considering God's guidance. You see, it was suddenly so clear to me that I wasn't always considering God's ways when making decisions on how to use our family's time or our own time within our family. That's time and energy that God has provided, and I was ignoring the path that he had set out. You see, God gave me a great reset, a chance to refocus on God, and yet it's still hard because Doing whatever I want or whatever you want, that's the easy path, right? Well, maybe in the short term. You know, we let stuff creep into our lives so easily without considering what it means. Does it bring glory to God? We have to fight ourselves, our doubts, our sinfulness in order to follow God. It wasn't easy for David or Abraham or Jacob, and it's not easy for us either. But God has made the way, and if we trust in him, if we put our hope in him and him alone, he will make sure that we get to where he wants us to be. It is his plan, and he will not let it fail. So put your trust and hope in the Lord. He guides and delivers sinners. We pray with me.